Chapter Forty Three of Romola. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Morant. Romola by George Eliot. Chapter Forty Three, The Unseen Madonna. In returning from the hospital, more than an hour later, Romola took a different road making a wider circuit towards the river, which she reached at some distance from the Ponte Vecchio. She turned her steps towards that bridge, intending to hasten to San Stefano in search of Baldassare. She dreaded to know more about him, yet she felt as if, in forsaking him, she would be forsaking some near claim upon her. But when she approached the meeting of the roads where the poor Santa Maria would be on her right hand and the Ponte Vecchio on her left, she found herself involved in a crowd who suddenly fell on their knees, and she immediately knelt with them. The cross was passing, the great cross of the Duomo which headed the procession. Romola was later than she had expected to be, and now she must wait till the procession had passed. As she rose from her knees, when the cross had disappeared, the return to a standing posture, with nothing to do but gaze, made her more conscious of her fatigue than she had been while she had been walking and occupied. A shopkeeper by her side said, Madonna Romola, you will be weary of standing. Gian Fantoni will be glad to give you a seat in his house. Here is his door close, at hand. Let me open it for you. What? He loves God and the Frate as we do. His house is yours. Romola was accustomed now to be addressed in this fraternal way by ordinary citizens, whose faces were familiar to her from her having seen them constantly in the Duomo. The idea of home had come to be identified for her less with the house in Via de Bardi, where she sat in frequent loneliness, than with the towered circuit of Florence where there was hardly a turn of the streets at which she was not greeted with looks of appeal or of friendliness. She was glad enough to pass through the open door on her right hand and be led by the fraternal hose-vendor to an upstairs window, where a stout woman with three children, all in the plain garb of the Piagnoni, made a place for her with much reverence above the bright hanging draperies. From this corner station she could see not only the procession pouring in solemn slowness between the lines of houses on the Ponte Vecchio, but also the river and the Lung Arno on towards the bridge of the Santa Trinita. In sadness and in stillness came the slow procession. Not even a wailing chant broke the silent appeal for mercy. There was only the tramp of footsteps and the faint sweep of woolen garments, they were young footsteps that were passing when Romola first looked from the window, a long train of the Florentine youth, bearing high in the midst of them the white image of the youthful Jesus, with a golden glory above his head, standing by the tall cross where the thorns and the nails lay ready. After that train of fresh beardless faces came the mysterious-looking companies of discipline, bound by secret rules to self-chastisement, and devout praise, and special acts of piety, all wearing a garb which concealed the whole head and face except the eyes. 
Everyone knew that these mysterious forms were Florentine citizens of various ranks, who might be seen at ordinary times going about the business of the shop, the counting-house, or the state. But no member now was discernible as son, husband, or father. They had dropped their personality and walked as symbols of a common vow. Each company had its color and its badge, but the garb of all was a complete shroud and left no expression but that of fellowship. In comparison with them, the multitude of monks seemed to be strongly distinguished individuals, in spite of the common tonsure and the common frock. First came a white stream of reformed Benedictines, and then a much longer stream of the Frati Minori, or Franciscans, in that age all clad in gray, with the knotted cord round their waists, and some of them with the zaccoli, or wooden sandals, below their bare feet, perhaps the most numerous order in Florence, owning many zealous members who loved mankind and hated the Dominicans. And after the gray came the black of the Augustinians of San Spirito, with more cultured human faces above it, men who had inherited the library of Boccaccio, and had made the most learned company in Florence when learning was rarer, then the white over dark of the Carmelites, and then again the unmixed black of the Servites, that famous Florentine order founded by seven merchants who forsook their gains to adore the Divine Mother. And now the hearts of all onlookers began to beat a little faster, either with hatred or with love, for there was a stream of black and white coming over the bridge of black mantles over white scapularies, and everyone knew that the Dominicans were coming. Those of Fiesole passed first, one black mantle parted by white after another, one tonsured head after another, and still expectation was suspended. They were very coarse mantles, all of them, and many were threadbare, if not ragged, for the prior of San Marco had reduced the fraternities under his rule to the strictest poverty and discipline. But in the long line of black and white there was at last singled out a mantle only a little more worn than the rest, with a tonsured head above it which might not have appeared supremely remarkable to a stranger who had not seen it on bronze medals with the sword of God as its obverse, or surrounded by an armed guard on the way to the Duomo, or transformed by the inward flame of the orator as it looked round on a rapt multitude. As the approach of Savonarola was discerned, none dared conspicuously to break the stillness by a sound which would rise above the solemn tramp of footsteps and the faint sweep of garments. Nevertheless, his ear, as well as other ears, caught a mingled sound of slow hissing that longed to be curses, and murmurs that longed to be blessings. Perhaps it was the sense that the hissing predominated which made two or three of his disciples in the foreground of the crowd, at the meeting of the roads, fall on their knees as if something divine were passing. The movement of silent homage spread. It went along the sides of the streets like a subtle shock, leaving some unmoved, while it made the most bend the knee and bow the head. But the hatred, too, gathered a more intense expression, and as Savonarola passed up the poor Santa Maria, Romola could see that someone at an upper window spat upon him.
monks again, frati umiliati, or humble brethren, from Ognesanti, with a glorious tradition of being the earliest workers in the wool trade, and again more monks, Valombrosan, and other varieties of Benedictines, reminding the instructed eye by niceties of form and color that in ages of abuse, long ago, reformers had arisen who had marked a change of spirit by a change of garb, till at last these shaven crowns were at an end, and there came the train of untonsured secular priests. Then followed the twenty-one incorporated arts of Florence in long array, with their banners floating above them in proud declaration that the bearers had their distinct functions, from the bakers of bread to the judges and notaries, and then all the secondary officers of state, beginning with the less and going on to the greater, till the line of secularities was broken by the canons of the Duomo, carrying a sacred relic, the very head, enclosed in silver, of San Zenobio, immortal bishop of Florence, whose virtues were held to have saved the city perhaps a thousand years before. Here was the nucleus of the procession. Behind the relic came the archbishop in gorgeous cope, with canopy held above him, and after him the mysterious hidden image, hidden first by rich curtains of brocade enclosing an outer painted tabernacle, but within this, by the more ancient tabernacle which had never been opened in the memory of living men, or the fathers of living men. In that inner shrine was the image of the pitying mother, found ages ago in the soil of La Impruneta, uttering a cry as the spade struck it. Hitherto the unseen image had hardly ever been carried to the Duomo without having rich gifts borne before it. There was no reciting the list of precious offerings made by emulous men and communities, especially of veils and curtains and mantles, but the richest of all these, it was said, had been given by a poor abbess and her nuns, who, having no money to buy materials, wove a mantle of gold brocade with their prayers, embroidered it and adorned it with their prayers, and, finally, saw their work presented to the Blessed Virgin in the great piazza by two beautiful youths who spread out white wings and vanished in the blue. But today there were no gifts carried before the tabernacle. No donations were to be given today except to the poor. That had been the advice of Fra Girolamo, whose preaching never insisted on gifts to the invisible powers, but only on help to visible need and altars had been raised at various points in front of the churches, on which the oblations for the poor were deposited. Not even a torch was carried. Surely the hidden mother cared less for torches and brocade than for the wail of the hungry people. Florence was in extremity. She had done her utmost and could only wait for something divine that was not in her own power. The frate in the torn mantle had said that help would certainly come, and many of the faint-hearted were clinging more to their faith in the frate's word than to their faith in the virtues of the unseen image. But there were not a few of the fierce-hearted who thought with secret rejoicing that the frate's word might be proved false. Slowly the tabernacle moved forward, and knees were bent. There was profound stillness, 
for the train of priests and chaplains from La Impruneta stirred no passion in the onlookers. The procession was about to close with the priors and the gonfalonier, the long train of companies and symbols which have their silent music and stir the mind as a chorus stirs it, was passing out of sight, and now a faint yearning hope was all that struggled with the accustomed despondency. Romola, whose heart had been swelling, half with foreboding, half with that enthusiasm of fellowship which the life of the last two years had made as habitual to her as the consciousness of costume to a vain and idle woman, gave a deep sigh, and at the very end of some long mental tension, and remained on her knees for very languor, when suddenly there flashed from between the houses on to the distant bridge something bright-colored. In the instant, Romola started up and stretched out her arms, leaning from the window, while the black drapery fell from her head, and the golden gleam of her hair and the flush in her face seemed the effect of one illumination. A shout arose in the same instant. The last troops of the procession paused, and all faces were turned towards the distant bridge. But the bridge was passed now. The horseman was pressing at full gallop along by the Arno. The sides of his bay horse, just streaked with foam, looked all white from swiftness. His cap was flying loose by his red becetto and he waved an olive branch in his hand. It was a messenger, a messenger of good tidings. The blessed olive branch spoke afar off. But the impatient people could not wait. They rushed to meet the oncomer, and seized his horse's rein, pushing and trampling. And now Romola could see that the horseman was her husband, who had been sent to Pisa a few days before on a private embassy. The recognition brought no new flash of joy into her eyes. She had checked her first impulsive attitude of expectation, but her governing anxiety was still to know what news of relief had come for Florence. Good news! Best news! News to be paid with hose! Novelle de Calze were the vague answers with which Tito met the importunities of the crowd until he had succeeded in pushing on his horse to the spot at the meeting of the ways where the gonfalonier and the priors were awaiting him. There he paused, and bowing low, said, Magnificent Signori, I have delivered to you the joyful news that the galleys from France, laden with corn and men, have arrived safely in the port of Leghorn by favor of a strong wind, which kept the enemy's fleet at a distance. The words had no sooner left Tito's lips than they seemed to vibrate up the streets. A great shout rang through the air and rushed along the river, and then another, and another, and the shouts were heard spreading along the line of the procession towards the Duomo, and then there were fainter answering shouts, like the intermediate plash of distant waves in a great lake whose waters obey one impulse. For some minutes there was no attempt to speak further. The Senoria themselves lifted up their caps and stood bareheaded in the presence of a rescue which had come from outside the limit of their own power, from that region of trust and resignation which has been in all ages called divine. At last, 
as the signal was given to move forward, Tito said, with a smile, I ought to say that any hose to be bestowed by the magnificent Signoria in reward of these tidings are due not to me, but to another man who had ridden hard to bring them, and would have been here in my place if his horse had not broken down just before he reached Signa. Meo di Sasso will doubtless be here in an hour or two, and may all the more justly claim the glory of the messenger, because he has had the chief labor and has lost the chief delight. It was a graceful way of putting a necessary statement, and after a word of reply from the proposto, or spokesman of the Senoria, this dignified extremity of the procession passed on, and Tito turned his horse's head to follow in its train, while the great bell of the Palazzo Vecchio was already beginning to swing, and give a louder voice to the people's joy in that moment, when Tito's attention had ceased to be imperatively directed. It might have been expected that he would look round and recognize Romola, but he was apparently engaged with his cap, which, now the eager people were leading his horse, he was able to seize and place on his head, while his right hand was still encumbered by the olive branch. He had a becoming air of lassitude after his exertions, and Romola, instead of making any effort to be recognized by him, threw her black drapery over her head again and remained perfectly quiet. Yet she felt almost sure that Tito had seen her. He had the power of seeing everything without seeming to see it. End of chapter 43 of Romola Reading by Elizabeth Morant.